right. Welcome back to the show. This is Business in the Morning, conversations around sales, marketing, innovation, and transformative leadership. I am your host, Todd Schnick. I'm here today with two very dear friends of mine. We're starting a new series, Business in the Morning. It's called Three Men and a Book. We'll tell you the tagline later when we figure it out. But this is a new series that we're going to do on this show where the three of us are going to get together and we're going to we're going to pick a book a month and we're going to get on the show and talk about it and what we learned from it and make recommendations on whether the audience would benefit from it or not. But I'm joined by two, my two dear friends who I want to get into and get them introduced before we get into this book. Let's start with you, Mike Haberman. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's good to have you, uh, Mike. Before we get into it, take a quick second. Tell us a little bit about you and your background. I'm a human resources consultant that specializes in helping small companies. I also have a human resources blog that I have written for coming up on eight years and about just past 1,200 posts on that. Wow. And in that, I occasionally will review a book, and that's sort of what, what the impetus was for uh, Three Men in a Book. I think you're the brainchild behind this idea, so uh, brilliant. I'm looking forward to it. We're also joined by Bill Ramsey. Welcome to the show, Bill. Hey, great to be here. Thanks. Good to have you. I think this is your first time in studio, actually on a show, so it's good to finally get you in here. Bill, what's a... What's your story? Tell us about you and your background. Well, for those listening, I am astoundingly good-looking, and I work That's for a why company. We're on the radio. Exactly. I work for RightFit HR, and what we do is we provide assessment tools that help companies understand who they're hiring before they hire them. Also, can help post-hire. You know, managing your people and understanding best how we get along. Other than that, I'm a transplant from Little Rock about two years ago, and I love it here. And I love everything. And your son talks a lot of smack, but we'll get into that in future episodes, I suspect. Uh, Mike, the book you select for episode one of Three Men in a Book is called The Decision Maker by Dennis Bakke. Mate, why did you make this selection? It was recommended to me by some friends, and I made contact with the, the PR agency that is, was helping publish this book, and the premise of it just sounded very interesting, and I said, hey, I'll be more than happy to take a look at it, and uh, subsequently, we all have copies of it, and that's why we're reading it. The premise of the book is a story about two men who buy a company and in the process of beginning to run that company realize that there are some issues in the decisions that their employees make or don't make. One, a significant one in this story, is one that costs them um, money and time and find in the investigation of that that an employee could have made a quick decision but was not empowered to make that decision. Thus he didn't and thus the mistake. And that got one of the owners, it's Jim and Tom, thinking about what could be what could have been done differently than just going on with that error. And Jim started to or was it Tom? Tom was the ringleader of Tom, pushing the decision making. Yeah, Tom process. was was the one that said we need to start basically empowering our employees to make decisions. And from that point on, it rolled until the end of the book and the very interesting story. But that's sort of what it's 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 based upon empowering employees. I find it's similar to the concept of from a few years ago of open book management. And I don't know if either of you ever read the book Open Book Management. I have not. No. Very interested. And it's probably 10 years ago. And it's the whole concept is that you teach people about the business. You make everything transparent. You make help people understand why waste costs what it costs, how it impacts their wages, how it impacts other people's wages, how it impacts the bottom line, how taking breaks that were too long 
impact all of that as well. It's the story of going through and transforming the business to where everybody basically becomes not officially an owner, but they take ownership responsibility. And as I'm reading The Decision Maker, it brought back memories of that process. They get into transparency. They get into people understanding why their decisions have an impact on the bottom line. So it was it was that process that uh, may be interested in the book. Bill, what are your thoughts? Is this an HR text or or is it a more traditional business book? Well, I, have, I have a hard time putting it into a, a specific business genre. What are, what are your thoughts? I, I found it interesting. I chuckled that the first person in the story to give a real kickback to the concept was the HR director. And I chuckled and I thought, I'm curious to hear Mike's take on that. As we go on, we see that she embraces it. And um, I, I would say I would really lean this more on the business side than the HR side. But, you know, that's probably a false dichotomy. You know, I, you know when, when we have a conversation where HR is divorced from the business side, then that's another problem in my opinion. So Absolutely. I don't really think in today's world and what we're doing in HR and what I teach in HR is the fact that HR has to be a business partner. HR has to be an integral part of the business. Now, in this particular story, she has a significant part in there. And I'll be honest with you, there were a couple things that were said in here where I sort of called BS on the fact that HR would have had that much power in any manufacturing (laughs) situation, such as scheduling machinery. I don't think that's typical in an organization. And one of my concerns about most organizations that I interact with is that HR is lower on the priority list when, in fact, the people are the most important asset of an organization. I mean, that that's not typical, I don't think. You're, you're right. And that's one of the big arguments that's going on in the HR arena today that was frequently talked about at Sherm National when I went to Chicago in June. And it's, it's an ongoing discussion in almost every HR conference or meeting that you go to is what level of decision making, what level of authority should HR have in the in the organization. My experience has been typically they're not going to have the level that they would like to have. And I think Bill's experience in conversations that he and I have had back that up that we frequently get in and find out that HR people are not the decision makers. And, you know, we both in essence sell to HR a little bit and find that they're not empowered to make the kinds of decisions that the woman in this book is empowered to make. So, the one of the things that was interesting in, in, in relating it back to the uh, open book management was the fact that many employees didn't want to accept the responsibility for understanding the business. Now, a few more in here did. Some managers were unwilling to relinquish some of the uh, the decision making power that they had. But the you know the whole premise of this book is to allow people to make decisions. That if it's their area of expertise, they rather than their manager or the vice president of the company or the president of the company, they're the ones that are in the best position to make a decision on use of resources, use of money, use of time. And that's what Tom in this book was trying to push people to is that if you know about it and there's nobody else that knows about it better than you do, then why shouldn't I empower you to make that decision? Some people were hesitant to do that. But in his story, he gets people embracing that, and it turns out to, to be relatively positive. Bill, is this a book that, that just teaches you how to give, Mike, you used the word empower. To me, the key theme of the book is empowering your people mm-hmm. to take ownership and to make key decisions. And Tom, an interesting dichotomy in the book is that Tom, one of the co-owners, is the guy who's the advocate and the heavy force behind implementing the strategy. And Jim 
his co-owner is the one who's hesitant and nervous and anxious and, and watching watching the dollars and anxious about how it's going to impact the numbers. And I found that very interesting. And that that probably is very realistic in an organization sure, that, sure. that's doing those kinds of things. Uh, but is this just a, a Bible about empowerment? When I read this, I look at this from my, my perspective of approaching so many different companies. And, and often I am approaching an HR person or I'm a pre- approaching a CEO, a COO, a CFO. And, and if I were to say anything, I'd say, add a boy to Dennis for writing this because I, I see this as a prescription for a culture in corporate America. I, I think that, in my opinion, what, what Dennis is advocating is some entrepreneurial type thinking in a corporate world. And boy, those two scales of thought are often so far apart. To be more specific, it has been shocking to me as I go into so many different companies. And the larger the company, usually this is more the case. There is a a culture of decision paralysis and not there's two ends of that. At the sea level, decision paralysis in the sense of traditionally what we've read about, there are so many decisions to make that most of them don't get done because they just there's just too many. Well, why is that? The other end of the spectrum is I'm paralyzed by fear to make a decision. You know, the, the, the person on the front line who, who really makes things happen, you've got a manager of a retail store who sells a million dollars a year. You talk about some solutions for them. They think, gosh, that would be fantastic. And uh, well, well, who would we talk to about that? And and I've been stunned how often I've seen literally a look of fear of, uh, I can't tell you that. Not even, I won't tell you a name. I won't tell you a phone number. I won't say anything because they don't want their name being run up the ladder of, of a new idea. And so that's the end of the spectrum of, I'm afraid to suggest something. And the, and the book addresses that. And then on the other end of the sea level, I'm just paralyzed because I have so many things to address. You know, the only thing worse is that if you try to go halfway and uh, halfway, quote unquote, empower your people, you know, because if you're saying that, that we empower our people to make decisions, we all know that's BS. Because <laughs> if you have to say it, you know, it's not true. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, well, well, one, one of the things that, that I was thinking of as, as, we, as I was reading this, it was the fact that in American management, many managers still operate on the theory X, theory Y style of management. The theory X being people don't want to be here. People don't want to accept responsibility. You got to kick their butts to get managed them to by do fear. anything. Managed by fear. And there actually is one manager in this book that basically takes that approach. The other one, and the one identified by Tom, is the Theory Y manager that says, no, people do want to do a good job. They do want to show up. You don't need to kick them in the butt. You don't need to track their attendance. You don't need to do all of that. And if you give them the ability to make a decision and let them know that they're not going to suffer as a result of making that decision and something goes wrong, then they will accept that. So this this book kind of embodies the the old theory X, theory Y style of management. I think, unfortunately, still in many American businesses, you have that level of management that says, people don't want to be here, so I have to make all of the decisions. That's my prerogative. That's what I'm getting paid to do. Those people shouldn't be making the decisions. They should only be doing what I am telling them. And that goes counter to this whole movement of trying to empower employees, and it certainly goes counter to the story that is being told in the decision maker. And I think it's a great story. I would really like people to embrace this kind of culture within their organization. Certainly in a 20,000 employee company, this is going to be extremely hard to institute, as was the case with open book management. But for a new company where you've got 20 employees and you are planning on growing and building, and when you hire people, you can inculcate them immediately into that kind of culture of making decisions, I think this could be extremely successful and help catapult those companies to the kind of growth. 
in the book, though, they talk about the fact that this was instituted in a, a company that had, what, 22,000 employees? I think so, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, their experience kind of goes counter to what I thought it might fit, but I, I think it would be very successful in a smaller company. All right. Three men in a book. We'll be back after this short commercial break. When they Google, will you be there? Your prospects and customers are not just searching. They're scouring the Internet, getting themselves through as much as 80% of their buying process before they have any interest whatever in talking to you. No strong online presence? You don't even get to compete. To establish and grow that online presence, you need an e-rep, a digital extension of yourself. And that's where Dreamland Interactive comes in. Whether it's establishing your e-rep for the first time, making it more visible to the search engines, or doing the really challenging work of harvesting great content, Dreamland Interactive e-rep processes and tools can help. Learn more about how Dreamland Interactive can shorten your sales cycle at dreamlandinteractive.com. All right, I'm back with Mike Hopperman and Bill Ramsey and three men and a book. Mike, Tom's initial reasoning for employing this decision-maker strategy in his organization was not to improve efficiency or improve decision-making, frankly, it was to help job satisfaction. I mean, it all started around this pinball machine that he thought, oh, let's put a pinball machine in the break room, and that's going to make everybody happy to be at work. When he discovered, rather rudely, that it has nothing, has no impact on, on job satisfaction. But once they implemented it, uh, it had a lot of surprising effects. Yeah, it was. You're right. He, he initially put the pinball machine in there. He was talking about something in the book of providing paid breaks, and it's like, well, you know, <laughs> that's not all that atypical for, for companies. But it, the whole ball started rolling with the fact that there was an accident on one of the machines, that something went wrong. And the employee who ran that machine, rather than taking the bull by the horns and, and making the change that was necessary that he saw was going to save the machine, they had a culture at that company that where he had to go get permission to shut the machine off. And he would have suffered repercussions, discipline for having shut that machine off without having sought that permission. And Tom took a look at this and went, you know, we could have been saved a whole lot of heartache and a whole lot of expense if that employee had just been empowered to make that decision to shut that machine off. And then that just started the ball rolling. He started thinking about the fact that there were other areas and other things that uh, that the employees could do being questioned all the way by, you know, Jim, who's the CFO and watching the purse strings and a very conservative investor in their company who was also concerned about the, the effect on the bottom line of employees being allowed to make decisions. And there were a number of, of everybody thought everything was happy-go-lucky until they started asking questions and find out that, as you mentioned earlier, Bill, one of the you know, people were afraid to make those decisions. There were they would be punished for making those decisions. All right. So as the story evolves and Jim and Tom install this decision maker strategy, there's initial hesitation and there's initial nervousness because it's just not what they're used to. But they, the organization as a whole, you know, largely adopts it. Well, some decisions are made that of course, caused some problems. I think what happened was a guy bought some some 
less expensive polymer as they were making something, and, and it ended up being a, a bad decision. And, and the products that this company was making, which is a medical services company, were breaking and was cheaply made. But it was a direct impact of someone making having empowerment to make that kind of decision. And he thought he was doing good by doing something less expensive. And so I was really pleased when Dennis put this in the book because it, it, it's a re, it's it, to me it brought a sense of reality to this thing that this is what's likely really to happen. But Bill, they as a result of that experience and the learning occurred. The learning that occurred from this poor decision, they put together this thing called the advice process, or what I guess they call the best knowledge. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Is, it, is, is, is that work? Is that real? Well, you know, you know, I read in a good book once that there's wisdom in the counsel of many. And, and that's exactly what they were looking at is that there were actually, ironically, other people on the team who could have told this decision maker, yeah, I've used that product and, and I knew that it, it stinks. And so through that, I, I think that's an important distinction that they make is that the fact that I've empowered you, Todd, to make a decision today doesn't mean you need to be a lone ranger in this, that uh, they, they instituted this concept of where you need to be reaching out to people who are in the place to help make a wise, informed decision. And, you know, I think it's only, you know... Oh, go so far as to say you have to talk to someone above you and talk to someone below you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's only prudent. I mean, why would you not? You know, because the fact is there's a wealth of knowledge around you. And, you know, what what that guy was looking at is a dollar sign, which is extraordinarily important. Turns out that wasn't everything, though. Mike, what what I found most important, the most important lesson I gleaned from this book, and if you've you've followed and read Tom Peters over the years, you you know exactly where I'm going with this, but this cross-functional communication. Most organizations, particularly ones that are driven from top-down and fear-based decision management making, you go in these silos, and, mm-hmm. these, and these silos never, never talk to one another. And when you're in a decision maker situation, as, as MedTech is, and MedTech's the company in, in this book, the, the cross functional communication changes everything. Talk about the importance of that, and, and is that viable? Is that real in a, in a real modern organization? Well, again, I, I, I think it could be real in an organization. It's certainly viable, and you know, the, the lesson of the story is that it can work out because this story is indeed based upon reality and and company that was set up and using this. Again, I think to me, it's going to be more successful in, in a smaller organization where you can get that culture set up from the beginning. And we all know that every organization has a culture. And many, as you talked about silos, there is no, no crosstalk from one silo to the next. And for this to to overcome that resistance of, of not talking from one part of the organization to another part of the organization, then uh, it, it's going to take a while to institute this. I think even with a small company, it's going to get take a while for people to start thinking out of what their normal patterns of behavior are. And an example of that in, in the book was the one, the one manager who thought it was his place to make decisions. Nobody knew the process better than he did. So why do I have to talk to somebody below me? And why? And there is nobody above me that knows this better. So I'll just go ahead and make the decision. And as, as you read in the story, that turns out to be a disastrous decision on his part. And he ends up getting criticized for not having followed the process of getting that advisement. And he found that he wasn't knowledgeable as he thought he was. Sure. And, you know, when I read through this book, I think that I think you're right. Easier in a small organization. I think also it, much of this will hinge upon somebody 
somebody with some sort of emotional maturity and a good splash of humility. Because in that situation, you're talking to somebody that in your mind is below the food chain on their pay scale or whatever their duties are. So let me ask you this, Todd. Let me turn a question on you. Here's one of the things that I really wrestled with as I read through the book is that the key premise being people want to make decisions. They want to take control. They want to have the power to make their own decisions. And I've really wrestled with that. Speak to that. Well, you know, there's an interesting conversation in the book that I think in part talks about what you're getting at there. And it's the notion of having the authority to make an honest decision. And, you know, the key is to be responsible for that decision. You're responsible for it. And the thing goes awry, you have to speak up for it. Now, you get some cover by, by seeking and collecting that advice that they talk about. But it's the difference in an organization of, of giving and empowering your people to make decisions versus holding a decision up for a group vote. I thought that was an interesting conversation uh, piece in the book where is that the same thing or, or, or is it very, very different? Because if you if you call a team meeting together and say, guys, we have to make a decision on buying this cheaper polymer, raise your hand if you're for it, raise your hand if you're against it. I think it's very different than having one individual solely responsible for making that decision, again, seeking counsel. Because if you if you if if it's just a team vote, it strikes me as that no one's really going to be held accountable to other than the team. And, and then I don't think that has the impact. I don't right. think the lessons will be learned if the decision goes awry. So I thought that was an interesting idea. I guess what I'm trying to say is to those listening to this show is if you put decisions like this up for your up, up for votes at your organization, I don't think that's serving you very well. I, I agree with you. I think things that are necessary for this to work properly is, number one, people have to be trained in the process of doing this, but number two, you have to have people who are willing to step up and take ownership of the process. And the other thing is there's got to be a culture of not punishing the mistakes that come about as a result of those decisions that are made. You learn from those decisions, you learn from those errors, and you correct those, but you don't shoot the messenger or the decision maker for having made that decision, if they followed the process and they followed their best knowledge and the advice that they were were given. And I think that's one of the things that's missing in many American businesses is that we punish mistakes immediately. We don't help people learn from mistakes. We punish them. Is that because we're still operating in the factory model? Yes, I I think so. And the goal is obedience and compliance and, and it's the straight rows in the classroom teaching that and then because this book is is very much anti that the yes. whole idea of that sorry all right well three men in the book we'll be back after this short commercial break wondering if technology can help you run your business better to help you better manage your data to make more informed more strategic and faster business decisions say hello to savad business solutions We don't rest until we identify and put into place customized solutions to remove the bottlenecks from your organization, making you better, faster, and more effective. Learn more at SavanSolutions.com. That's S-I-V-A-D Solutions.com. All right, Three Men in a Book is back. Bill, I, uh, I get the sense there was more to what your question was there, and, and, and guessing it has something to do with, does everybody in an organization buy into this idea of a decision maker? Do they want to be a decision maker? What are your thoughts on that? The premise of the book is yes. 
you know, the idea being that, uh, you know, you at home, you make decisions on, you know, your budget, on your insurance, on movie kids to watch go on to TV school. You make, yes, you are more than capable of making grand decisions. But uh, I don't want to sound like a, a Grinch or anything, but I have to wonder, there's a lot of people that I see that I think when they go to work, that is a facet of their life where they are very comfortable not making decisions. Now, the, the whole premise of the book is that everybody wants to take ownership. Everybody wants to be involved in that decision making. And, you know, even in my world of employee assessments, there's a scale of independence. How much do you need to make your own decisions? And some people, I, I don't see that, them wanting that or needing that. Well, a, a metaphor that Tom used throughout the book was the sports analogy of I'm the coach and I'm my employees are the players. And I'm believing that every employee or every player wants to be in the game and they want to be on the free throw line at a key moment of the game. They want to be in the mix. And I don't know. That's what I'm challenging. Think To use that analogy, what I think you're saying is that there are plenty of people happy to be on the bench. Or there are a lot of guys that, you know, that are top-notch players, but when it's down to one second, you're going to inbound the ball. Michael Jordan always wants the ball. Four other guys on the court that may be comfortable not being that guy at that moment. But yeah. but have we asked them? Have we ever tossed them the ball in that particular that, moment and allowed them the opportunity to That's to what Tom it? was saying in the book. Yeah. I, I actually, th- we could get into a generational discussion here. I think one of the reasons people don't want to make decisions in the workplace is because that has been the traditional model of American business. We just haven't ever done that. We have a management structure that is there to make those decisions and everybody else just follows rules. I think we have a new generation coming in where they, they do want to make decisions. They do want to have that kind of impact on their organization. I think Generation Y, if we could get a company of of Gen Yers bought into this process, it might be a very interesting experiment to see how well it goes. And, you know, exclude the wee baby boomers, of which I'm one of them. The other guys here aren't necessarily baby boomers, but I am. I'm 21. Yeah, yeah. You look great. (laughs) (laughs) It's the shine off the head. (laughs) Glare. It's the halo effect of that, the bald head. It is... uh, Go ahead, Grandpa. What were you saying? You know, I think we have too many people who have been in the business world too long that have modeled or have taken after the model of we don't make decisions. That's not what I'm being paid for. Where in the decision maker, if you have people making those decisions, the company's going to do better. We do get paid for making those decisions, not only what we're making, but then, you know, profit sharing that goes on top of that. And I think we may have a whole new generation that is going to be far more accepting of this kind of process than for an older generation that is having to relearn hmm. the process. Well, a common theme in this book that I want to get your guys' insight on, you, you both of you touched on this uh, at the top of the show in this perhaps overly powerful HR director in this organization, but I hate to break the surprise because, it, frankly, it was a thrilling surprise for me reading this book, but I can't help but bring it up in the context of our conversation. But the HR director comes and recommends to Tom that they dismantle the HR department. Yeah. And I was curious as to what your all's thoughts were on that. Is that real? Is that realistic? Is, is that possible? Uh, but everybody was questioning Tom, saying, you're, aren't you reducing your power by, by pushing decisions down to where they're more effectively made? And, and you know, his answer was very simply, well, my job is to pick the decision makers. All right. So talk about that idea a little bit. Well, I thought one of the things, that, again, this is where I, if Dennis, the author, were in here, I would really like to hammer him on this one just to, to get his insight of, you know, one of the things we see, just like you said, they keep pushing their decisions down to the idea being, he said, you know, 
My job is to give the decisions to others. And that's one where I, I might, again, tend to disagree because somebody who is in their position, you've been a CEO of 30 years. You, you've got a broad depth of experience. Well, the fact is your mind is, you think differently. You know, you think visionary, you think strategy, you think futurist, you think your decisions are influenced on a different mentality. And, and that's not a better mentality, but it's different. And so it, it seemed that the book tend to overlook that. I would be curious, you know, what Dennis would, how he would answer that. But um, Mike, what do you think? The, on the, the, the transformation that the HR person goes through in this book is, is really not out of the realm of possibility. It certainly is for for most organizations. That would be disastrous. Most people are not going to come in and recommend that their job disappear. Now, she ended up recommending a different job for herself, but it is sort of the transformation that the the HR profession as a whole is sort of trying to go undergo in making, rather than being that silo of HR, it that the process of engaging people, the process of selecting people, the process of rewarding people doesn't need to be an HR function. That is a managerial function. That is another people function. It is the group function. So you are, you, there. there is a move within the HR profession to get to that point, leaving core HR as, you know, helping define what the strategic direction of the company is and paying attention to what's going on in the future so that the companies can be prepared to deal with those black swan events out there and and just changes in demographics and that kind of stuff. So it's not typical in HR organizations, but there is a movement toward that in the profession. I, I really called BS to some of the, the initial power that this HR person had in the organization. I, did, right. I don't think you would find any organization where the HR person is scheduling jobs on in a manufacturing plant. I mean, there's there's a department for that typically, and the HR department is not it. He thinks there was some creative license to make the HR director powerful so that when she did recommend changing her role, that, that had more impact, I suspect. But I, it was, yeah, I think you're right. It was very, it was a, but it, for me, it was a holy smokes moment when, when she comes into Tom's office and makes that recommendation. Yeah. Mike, uh, Bill, I have to ask you, I mean, as you guys know, I'm very fortunate that I get to interact with a lot of organizations through all the shows we do at the Dreamland Radio Network. But what I'm surprised and in part kind of excited about is we're talking to more and more ESOP organizations. And I can't help but wonder that when the employees own the company, is does that kind of almost naturally push it more towards a decision maker type of an organization? What's y'all's experience with those kinds of those kinds of companies? Well I I have a client that is an ESOP organization and it has not worked out quite as well as they mm. were originally anticipated and do you know why? Because everyone I talked to, they love it. Yeah, there were a couple of reasons. One, they were in an industry that suffered significantly from the economic downturn, which made things difficult and actually ended up resulting in people losing their jobs. And so the, just the number of, of people involved in the organization uh, left. But the other one is many of the people were not embracing of some of the decisions that they had to make. You know, and in an ESOP, employees are supposed to be making some decisions on organization and processes and those kinds of things. And in this particular client, that transformation has not occurred. People have not stepped up to the plate to uh, to take their responsibility, and they still get a lot of finger pointing. Well, the reason this didn't work was because somebody didn't do what they were supposed to do. It wasn't me. It was them. Right. Not me. 
Yeah. The so. most popular character on the family circus. Yes. Absolutely. Not me. <laughs> Let's make up a scenario here where you're providing counsel to a decision-making organization like this. And someone in management comes to you and says, we have a, a group of people who, who are resisting and, and not wanting to buy into this idea of a decision-maker. What's your counsel? Is it, well, then get rid of them and get people who buy into it? Or is it your role as a manager then to slot them into a role that does suit them? What's your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, obviously the first thing to do is to start asking a lot of questions, you know, and, and hopefully they've been vocal of, I don't want this. In reality, they probably haven't been. Probably it's not. probably been more passive aggressive or more just ignoring the directive, um, which makes it more problematic. So I, I, you know, I would take a look at, you know, what are the obstacles in their minds to, to stepping up to that? And, and frankly, there are just some people, I believe, who that's not why they come to work, you know, and it may be an issue of, you know, they're not engaged because, A, maybe they just don't love this company or this work, but they, they like it. You know, I'm happy to come from my job, but it's not passion. It's not, you know, that's just a facet of my life that I devote these hours to. So so firing may be part of it. Of uh, If you have other people who want to come in, who believe in your story, who want to be evangelists for you to, to work there who are much more engaged, then obviously you want those people. A, I just ask a lot of questions. Just find out where's the resistance coming from. And, uh, you know, I'd want to take a look specifically, and I hate to come back to the assessment, but that's what I do. I'd be curious about some assessments on some of those people of, are they typically, is that just their their style? Or is it that they are working with maybe the, the manager above them? There are some dynamics of how they work with him or her that, that makes them afraid to well, step up and do they, that. They talk about company-wide surveys in this book as sort of a, a big global advice advice process that can have a real impact. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because ironically, the statistics will tell you that your disengaged employees tend to stay at your organization longer than your engaged employees. That's fascinating. It is. You wouldn't think that. You, it's counterintuitive, but that's that's the case. Well, except for the fact that the engaged employees are probably also your more skilled employees, and they know that they have skills out in the marketplace that are going to allow them to get employed, where the disengaged employee is probably also the less skilled employee, and they know that they're not going to be successful out in the open marketplace. Getting back to the point you were making as far as whether people want to do this or not, it takes me back to the open book management process where there were people who just did not want to learn how the company made its money. If you took a look at them, they were probably poor money managers themselves in their own personal lives. They didn't like doing checkbooks. They didn't like balancing, you know, they may have been in debt. And if they're saying, I don't like doing this for my personal life, then why do I want to come to work and learn about how the company does it as well? And so in that process of that organization, it was a company called Springfield Remanufacturing Company that that book was written on, there was turnover. And people did leave because they said, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't, this isn't what I want to face when I come to work. And they ended up replacing them with people who bought into the process from day one and subsequently were more successful in learning what they had to learn to be able to to do the job. It's, you know, that process was not an easy one. I don't think this process would be an easy one. This is not something that you, you do in a month. You know, people are going to have to learn that they can step up and make decisions. They are going to have to learn that they're not going to get punished for making those decisions. The management, as we learned with with Jim and Tom, they themselves had to resist their normal way of doing things and stepping up and saying, I'm making the decision. They had to step up and say, no, my decision is not to make the decision. My decision is to make you make the decision. Which is a decision. Which is a decision. But that is not what 
most of us think of as somebody making a decision. You go to the boss and you say, here's the problem. So what do you think we ought to do? And you probably know this, but I forget exactly what his name was, Jim Monken or something like that, about where he wrote a book about the monkey on the back. Mm, That what you did, uh, what people would do is they would come in the door with the problem represented as the monkey on the back. And as soon as they said, what do you think, the monkey jumps from their back to your back. And now you're the one that has to make that decision. And in this particular case, Jim and Tom, Tom in particular, were going, nope. Don't want your monkey. Monkey stays on your back. Right. You, you make the decision. Well, and, and that harkens back to what I was referencing earlier is that the sea level that is so inundated with decisions that there's no way they could, you know, why is the company moved so slowly? Because it's the adage is the larger the company, the slower the change, which, you know, the larger the ship, sure. the slower it turns. But I would suggest a lot of that, that there's stagnancy, they're slow to stay competitive, um, they're stuck in the status quo, their employees are disengaged, they're losing money. It's because there's so many decisions that need to be made. But if you've got a group of four people making all the decisions, well, you got to, you know, they, that's a room full of monkeys for them to sort through. Sure. And, you know, I would suggest that let's look at what Dennis had to say about your decision making. Well, gentlemen, we're running low on time. Uh, since I largely steered the conversation a bit, I covered the things that I wanted to cover, but I want to give you each opportunity. Is there other elements from this book, other ideas, concepts that you guys want to want to touch on quickly? Bill, we'll start with you. No, I, I think we've we've covered, you know, I've made a few notes to myself and I've hit on some of the things, you know, just being a guy who works with so many different companies, it's been fascinating to see the dynamic. And usually within about two minutes of a conversation, I know, you know, the culture of this company is, you know, there's openness. These people have real power, not authority. You know, authority is the right to make the choice. Power is the, the ability to make that choice happen, you know. I can tell pretty quickly organizations that have, their people have power to do things. And then sadly, so many of them just don't. And so I, th- I think it's a, a just a different way of thinking. And I, I enjoyed the book. I would recommend it. And uh, it's a it's an interesting read. It is written as a parable, which uh, parable books can be fantastic, like The Go-Giver or The One-Minute Manager, or we could get into books about moving cheese that aren't so fantastic. <laughs> Mike, do you have any final thoughts? No, I, other than I would recommend the book too. I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, and I think I know a number of of them would probably have a very difficult time instituting this kind of process. One of the reasons they got into starting their own company is because they were comfortable being the ones that made the decisions. So many of the ones that I know who are even successful would still have to do a lot of learning right. to, to be I, able to adapt to this system. I echo that comment, and that was going to be my final comment. And I, too, recommend the book. You guys both botched my final segment. We were going to go around the horn and say thumbs up, thumbs down. So, But I guess we all thumbs up. And the, the reason, Mike, is in essence what you just said. You mentioned the generational thing. I liken myself as an entrepreneur who, who would be receptive to something like this, but there were plenty of scenarios in this book that made me very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I loved that it made me feel that way because it really made me think about because my organization's growing, and and I'm going to have to start doing some management and pushing decisions down. And I'm a I'm a control freak. I love to have, yeah. uh, you know. And and <laughs> and and there there are things that my business partners do differently than I would do it. Doesn't they didn't do they don't do it poorly. They just do it differently because I it's just a personal preference thing. And so this was a this made me really rethink a couple of things. So uh, again, the book is called The Decision Maker by Dennis Bakke. Subtitle of the book is Unlock the Potential of Everyone in Your Organization One Decision at a Time. Great read. Guys, before I let you go, Bill, how can people get in touch with you and learn about your work? Check us out online at rightfithr.com. That's R-I-G-H-T. You can learn about uh, what we have to offer there and see my lovely, smiling 21-year-old face on the website, email and phone number, and everything's there. Outstanding. Mike, how can people get in touch with you? Probably the best way to do that is to go to our website, which is www.omega.com. 
hrsolutions.com. There you will find a fascinating blog on the front page and a whole bunch of information about the company on the pages behind that. All right. Gentlemen, it was just a lot of fun. I think we're, gonna, we're on to something here. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Three men and a book will return. On behalf of my co-hosts, Bill Ramsey, Mike Hubberman, I'm Todd Schnick. We'll see you soon on Business in the Morning.